Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and on this week's show, Steve and I are thrilled to be speaking with Mark Tabersian. Mark is, of course, the CEO of Pershing Advisor Solutions. Prior to that, he was a principal at Moss Adams, where he was the partner in charge of the business consulting group, the chairman of the financial services industry group, and the partner in charge of the business valuation group. And for all of these accomplishments, Mark is equally well known for everything that he does to advance the industry. He's generous with his time, asks the big questions, shares his insights, and generally agitates for a more professional industry. He's also the author of four books, Practice Made Perfect, How to Value, Buy, or Sell a Financial Advisory Practice, Practice Made More Perfect, and The Enduring Advisory Firm. In this episode, we talk to Mark about how advisory firms need to evolve going forward, and uh, we talk about the impact of brand on referability. We also have a really interesting conversation about culture, what it really means, and how it can impact success. And with that, let's dive right into the conversation. So, Mark, welcome. Really excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, Well, look, why don't don't we start uh, with a broad topic and talk a little bit about growth? I know we could talk about so many things. And you know, I know that as firms are evolving, they need to think about all of the various different levers that they could pull to drive growth, whether that's organic or whether it's inorganic. And I know that, of course, they have questions about where they should focus their time. Our podcast, of course, is about becoming referable. So I wanted to perhaps just start there, dive in a little, and and maybe get some general comment from you on how you feel advisory firms can become more referable. Sure. I think that uh, what's interesting about this business is uh, for many advisory firms, Obtaining more clients is not their biggest challenge. Having the capacity to serve more clients uh, is where the real pain exists. Uh, But because of that limited capacity, I think that many advisory firms uh, struggle to focus on the kinds of things that make them available to the marketplace, that make them referable, to make people think that uh, that this is a firm that actually is taking on new clients. In fact, I can I can cite multiple examples where uh, advisors had shared with me uh, that new prospects have said, I didn't think that you were taking on any more clients. I thought you were tapped out. So obviously, that's one of the big concerns that people in this business have to be conscious of is is whether or not they're even available to be dated, and that's something well, and, we're thinking about. And Mark, can I can I ask you to elaborate on that a little bit? Do you think that's coming more because advisors are not communicating that they're looking for new clients, or because they're so rushed or busy or those kinds of things that the client just has the impression that they don't have that capacity? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I think the lack of capacity is real. Uh, I also think that uh, that those who are have their their uh, business all filled up uh, generally act like they're not available. Their heads are down, their butts are up, and they're focused on doing uh, as much business as they can with their existing clients. Uh, and uh, in a way, even the things that advisors say to uh, centers of influence or prospects uh, could be something like this: uh, "How are you doing? How's your business?" And they'll respond. 
I'm just so busy. There's just so much going on. I don't know if I can do any more. And oh, that's there are utter, utterances like that that give the impression that you're not available. And uh, and so when I look at this question of what dynamic growth is going to be within the advisory business, uh, I think of it both in terms of emotional capacity as well as physical capacity to grow. And there's a tendency to project as woe is me, uh, I'm so overworked kind of mentality that uh, that I think it tends to uh, to cause people to think twice before they engage you. And can you tell us what you mean exactly by emotional versus physical? Do you, you just mean that the, the feeling that I am overwhelmed and the way that that comes across? Exactly. And so just imagine this whenever you speak to to your friends uh, who uh, often talk about how how much they're working and uh, how they don't have time to breathe or take a vacation or uh, or spend time with their family. And these kinds of impressions uh, really uh, are lasting in the minds of others as to whether or not somebody is making them available, making themselves available to the marketplace. So uh, to me, language is so important in this business. And how we say what we say uh, makes a huge difference in the minds of people who we're trying to uh, persuade to engage with us. And frankly, uh, I think that that sort of message really is creating a negative consequence for many advisors. Instead of saying, I'm so busy because I'm so popular, they're saying, I'm so busy and I am so tired. So... <laughs> Just as Steve said, that that problem could exist in reality, as in structurally the business is over capacity, and they quite literally couldn't take someone on without dropping the ball somewhere, um, which I guess is one issue. But if you were, let's assume that's not entirely the pro- the, the problem. How would you respond to that question? Beyond well, saying that, I'm 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 not busy at all. I'm sitting here with my feet up on a desk. I don't even know what to do with my time. Uh, well, I, I think I think if you if you think about um, you know who do you want to hang around with uh, with uh, with positive, uh, energetic people mm-hmm. or tired, depressing people, and uh, and so once again, if you take an inventory of your language and, and your body and your words. Uh, then you become more conscious of it. But I think as a practical matter, if an advisor is actually feeling that, if that is in fact what's wearing the individual down, part of this might be taking an inventory of which clients they're working with. Because if you have the right mix of relationships within your practice, then uh, you should be able to invest in capacity. Uh, if you don't have the the right mix of clients, then this may be time to start jettisoning uh, the bottom few that are sucking up all your energy and resources. And so there's a practical solution here, but all of this feeds into itself. And so capacity, um, real uh, or, or otherwise, and, and, and the language we, we choose obviously helps us to make become more referable. Any other um, just key parts of the business that you think support or drive uh, becoming referable or drive more referrals? Yes, I, I had a, a boss a number of years ago, and one of my 
previous careers. When I sold, uh, when I was part of a partnership that we sold our firm to Moss Adams, um, he he said to me that now that you don't have a company to run, he said uh, there are three things that will make you a great partner here. Uh, the first is to develop a technical specialty. The second is to develop a market specialty. And the third is to become famous at both. And I've always taught, thought that that was a great lesson for anybody in any service business is to be conscious of how they are perceived uh, in whatever marketplace they want to, uh, want to achieve some prominence. And so uh, for most advisors, it's really a question of identifying which communities make sense for them and how do they achieve some level of prominence within it. And the the, the community could be national, it could be local, uh, but the fact is that it would be a community that has a shared sense of needs or values or issues uh, that allow you to uh, to to build around and to literally become famous within. So uh, I think that uh, within the advisory business, like any service business, that sort of thinking is really critical to developing a, a proper referral uh, structure for your business. I think the second part of this is really um, uh, thinking about how you are actually uh, tracking and identifying the optimal client within within your practice. I think uh, one of the things that uh, that advisors often struggle with is not getting referred the right types of opportunities. And so the key to this, once again, using language, is to be uh, very clear about how you define your optimal client, whether it's by uh, the particular needs that you're addressing or other demographics that are important or uh, whether or not you can be clear about that particular community are all ways in which you raise the consciousness of the marketplace as to what type of business you'd like to do. And, and how do the two of those interplay with each other, Mark? I mean, it sounds like it's it would be it would be easier to become famous among a, a, a fairly well-defined group of people as opposed to becoming famous generally. And I think that sort of adds to the comment you made before about market segment and and industry. Can you elaborate a little bit on how those two play with each other? I think it, I think it's easier if you can define a community and become prominent within it first and then you can you can uh, open up other communities that's that's key and and part of this is going from being uh, a, a single practitioner to building a firm so there's a way in which to approach this from a firm wide strategy so i think i think the narrower you define uh, the market, uh, the easier it is to achieve that level of prominence. But it doesn't mean that you have to stop there. Uh, that said, in certain communities, uh, if you're in a mid-size or small-size um, city, let's say, uh, you may not have the luxury of developing a niche, uh, unless it's maybe medical or dental practitioners or something like that. Uh, so, uh, so then the challenge is really, uh, instead of becoming focused around uh, the niche, the community, you might be focused around a technical specialty. Uh, so as an example, uh, you may develop a reputation for being uh, the leading specialist uh, to serve business owners in transition uh, or, uh, or somebody who is uh, uh, committed to some other technical specialty like estate planning or managing risk 
for sudden wealth. There, there are other ways in which to think about this that uh, allows people to say, you know, if you have this situation, then you should be calling Steve or you should be calling Julie, and that's the way to think about it. What do you find? I'm sure you find this. I know we do because we're big advocates of, of defining that, that niche market. What do you find gets an advisor's way? Because something, it, it feels like an almost insurmountable challenge for some to accept that that might be a path worth pursuing. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's a fear of what they're missing. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's the same reason people uh, are reluctant to make commitments to any relationship is if I do that, then who will I not be able to see? And uh, I think in the advisory business, the notion is that there's so much money floating around. If I define myself too narrowly, then will somebody with wealth completely ignore me? And I think that's one. I think two is uh, people have to understand that just declaring a niche is not going to be sufficient. There has to be an experience that reflects that. So, uh, so part of it is saying, why, why am I focused on that particular community and why would they be interested in doing business with me? And then what is the client experience that they want? So imagine for a minute that uh, your niche was uh, gays and lesbians. Uh, so how conscious of you are you in the language that you use or the way in which you uh, promote yourself or the services that you provide that are relevant to that community? Uh, the same would be true if your market were evangelical Christians. Uh, are you uh, conscious of the terminology you're using? Are you linked uh, to uh, to what they read in Scripture that's relevant to them? And uh, And so this actually goes a long way towards building this brand that that you're not just focused on who you're selling to, but you're creating a client experience that they can relate to. And that's what really drives the referral experience, in my opinion. Let me just pick up. You used the word brand, and we sort of introduced that concept here. Um, what, how do you define that, first of all? We've gone sort of from niche to brand. What, what do you see as the differences there? Well, they're, they're clearly um, linked in so many ways. Uh, I, think that, um, I think that the brand identity is, really revolves around why you exist and why anybody should care. Uh, so when you look at, at um, uh, service businesses, one of the things we know is that if you are recognized as one of the top three firms in your defined market, then you're going to get twice as many opportunities to do business as the fourth next firm. And so that, to me, really reflects what brand is, is how you're identified. But to extend that a little bit more, uh, one of the things that uh, that I covered in, in one of my books, Practice Made More Perfect, was the fact that there are uh, eight different driving forces that advisory firms have. And just to kind of give you an example of this, uh, one that we just talked about would be niche. In other words, you're known for uh, a defined market. Another common uh, uh, differentiator or driving force in a business would be technical superiority, which I touched on as well. So whether it's it's uh, knowledge of sudden wealth or knowledge of divorce and how to manage through that, those two tend to be the most common. 
But there are other examples of this as well. Uh, market dominance is is a way in which people uh, can be recognized uh, as as being noticeably superior or uh, raise their prominence uh, in a marketplace. Uh, and so you have to be careful if you're in if you're in the uh, tri-state area around New York, uh, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to be market dominant because there are so many competitors. But uh, but if you can define a segment of the tri-state area, that makes sense. Like uh, working with financial industry professionals uh, as your client base, uh, th- then you could achieve dominance doing that. Uh, another way, uh, frankly, that people are are differentiating themselves is by being low cost. Uh, you could argue that the robo advisors are really using cost as their differentiator almost more than technology, uh, because that's they're very conscious about getting down to 25 basis points and ease of use as being uh, as being part of uh, that proposition. And I think in the advisory business, uh, for for many advisors, probably the most uh, common way in which they've developed uh, the brand is what I call the famous person strategy. Uh, this is uh, not transferable, uh, it, but it is highly impactful. Where uh, whereas an individual, you build everything around your reputation and your brand. This is why many people might have radio programs or newspaper columns or give a lot of speeches uh, to different groups, and they have an organization that supports them. Uh, And it can be extraordinarily rewarding, uh, but the notion of creating transferable value is a tough one in that case. Well, and on top of that, we have the issue that, you know, if if you get really wealthy clients to come to a model like that, they're going to want to talk to you. They're going to want to talk to the celebrity. I've, I've had actually somebody say to me in an advisory board, you know, the value of access to the principles is I want to know that if I have an issue, I can make a phone call and talk to the person whose name is on the door. And so it's not just a succession issue, it's a workload issue. And so how do what 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 thoughts do you have about how someone could build a public reputation for their company using those those PR types of things, getting quoted in the paper or making speeches or, or those kinds of things that would help build a brand as opposed to building that um cult of personality. Yeah, I think I think that's valid and that is part of the challenge. And so Part of this is recognizing that over the life cycle of our practice, uh, our brand definition may change. And nothing is forever, including how we want to be known. And there are plenty of examples in the advisory um, uh, world where people have established as an individual practitioner and ultimately built an ensemble and then a firm brand. And uh, in fact, uh, today we see uh, almost 700 firms in the marketplace with a billion dollars of assets. Many of them have multiples of billions of dollars of assets. They tend to be the fastest growing firms because they've managed to shift uh, and become less dependent on a single principle for driving driving that business. But the individual who founded the firm has to be comfortable with the fact that uh, his uh, his personal identity may become less of a factor in the future of the business. And that's that's a really hard conversation to have with with uh, many of them, as you know. Uh, so um, so I think that uh, I think it's important to recognize where are you in the life cycle, and how do you reduce dependency uh, on what got you here? Because that's not going to help you get you there. You have to think about it in those terms. 
Well, and this this may sort of lead us into a, a different part of the conversation. And, and if I'm taking us off topic, let me know. But I mean, Mark, we could use you as a very good example here, if you don't mind. But someone who has built um, an extraordinary profile in the industry, um, in at previous firms and and currently, and yet. Um, has built a team and, and a firm around and has invested in that team to ensure that the work being done isn't just about you. Um, I, I mean, can you tell us how you did that maybe to some extent or the lessons that, that you learned that would be uh, helpful for, for advisors in that way? Yes, uh, I, I appreciate that comment. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the... Uh, uh, it's one of the challenges of, of building personal brands is that uh, when you're an individual consultant, uh, it's it's much easier to get away with it than when you're leading an enterprise. And I had that experience both uh, when I was uh, with Moss Adams and, and uh, now at Pershing. And so um, part of this is positioning yourself more as uh, the mentor and the developer of people to continue with the philosophy and the approach and the culture and the beliefs uh, that you have uh, so that uh, so that when they go into the community, there is consistency among all of us in terms of what we say. And the fulfillment that I get out of all this, uh, just using that example, is uh, the vast majority of new clients that we sign on on Pershing don't know who I am. And uh, and they come from different places. They may have never met me, uh, and it may take a while before I even have a chance to get acquainted with them. And part of this is because uh, all the people that we've uh, we've attracted to Pershing in this process uh, are able to articulate uh, all of those elements that I talked about about our strategy, our optimal client, our culture, our values, what we deliver, and so forth. Um, I think um, I don't think it's easy, but it's something that the leader of the firm has to be comfortable uh, relinquishing, and in fact, do as much as you can to push others out to become more visible. And and that becomes uh, you know part of what we do is that uh, the speaking engagements that uh, that may have come to me first now uh, are going to other people within the firm. Uh, the 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 interviews with the media uh, were involving other people in those instead of having me be the focal point for that, and it has to be a conscious effort to uh, to uh, disentangle you from the monster you created uh, in order to allow the firm to flourish. So, I mean, you mentioned culture. Um... I mean, do you see then, and I'll, I'll ask you this in, in the context of the fact that we, Steve and I have just done some research around referrals and and the issue of team certainly came up and the extent to which the team could articulate the value proposition to the extent to which they were trained in, in, uh, in helping to grow referrals and whatnot. But, I mean, do you see a, a really strong connection or a connection at all between culture and generating referrals? I absolutely do. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, just to kind of give you an anecdote about this, uh, back in my consulting days, uh, even before Moss Adams, uh, the, the firm that we sold to Moss Adams, 
we always did consulting jobs as teams, and and so uh, since I was one of the leaders of the teams, uh, I would usually bring a younger associate along, and we were working with with advisory firms. And after the engagement was done, uh, one of the things that I would like to ask uh, the young associate is. Uh, if you had the money to invest, would you hire that firm? And uh, I was always fascinated by their reaction, and it wasn't always positive. Uh, and uh, inevitably, uh, what it came down to was a feeling that uh, either uh, it was either extraordinarily positive or, yes, I love these people and I want to be around them and I, I believe in their ethics and the way in which they show respect towards each other, or it was completely the opposite of that, where uh, where uh, there wasn't uh, the kind of uh, reflection of integrity or commitment to people development or uh, utterances of respect that they were looking for, and that would make a difference in how they would feel about those businesses. And so one of the things that I think that revealed to me uh, over time was that uh, is that if your own employees wouldn't feel good about you, what makes you think your clients would? And uh, that that idea has stuck with me, I think, uh, for many years as a result of just those simple exchanges with uh, with junior consultants that I've worked with. And and I I, I guess that sort of raises the other issue of um, you know if if I'm looking at a firm, a potential firm, as a prospect. I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be experiencing, I suppose, the culture when I walk through the door. I'm going to see it in the person that greets me and the people that I meet with. Uh, I'm also going to be looking at the team. I'm going to be looking at the bench strength that's in place, and I'm going to be asking myself, are these people going to be around uh, for some time? So, I mean, I'm making an assumption that you see a, a connection as well between the whole issue of, of having the team and bench strength and, and being attractive to prospective clients as well. Uh, you probably see this more than I do, but I, I think that one of the things I'm hearing consistently is that uh, the new generations of clients, particularly Gen X, uh, which is a, a, a fairly cynical um, uh, generation for a lot of reasons, uh, tend to go through a lot of validation and don't accept things at face value as our parents or even my generation of boomers uh, would. Uh, you know, there was a time when we would uh, build a relationship, then decide to do business with somebody. Now I think what we find uh, is that people want to judge your competence and things like the depth of your organization and the stability of what you do, uh, and they may or may not choose to build a relationship with you. Uh, it may just be a professional kind of dynamic. So um, I think that uh, prospects are going through a validating process, and they're looking more under the hood as to uh, what really is driving your business. How do you make decisions? Who can I call on uh, when I need something uh, to get done or when I need attention? And uh, I think that it's it's quite clear that there's a reason why ensemble practices are growing faster than solo practices because they have that depth, but because they do have so many more moving parts within their firms, uh, it it really does require uh, the prospects to get better acquainted with what's going inside those businesses. So uh, I think of this as an immense uh, risk, but also an immense training opportunity uh, for advisory firms to begin uh, addressing uh, not just whether 
they're hiring the right people, but whether or not the people they hire share the values of uh, of the principle within the business itself, and and that's a hard thing. And and how? What are some of the ways that that a founder can be can have a culture where they transmit those values? How does how does an advisor um, you know sort of bring his team along to uh, you know to, how how does the how does the, the the founder sort of develop that culture to project the kinds of messages that that they hope get out there? Uh, the first part of this is really creating a statement of cultural values. Uh, uh, one of them, in fact, um, one that I use often is is one that we had at Moss Adams uh, called Pillar, P-I-L-L-A-R. Uh, its components were passion uh, for excellence, uh, uh, integrity, uh, lifetime learning, lead by example, accountability, and respect for others. And so in a simple way, we were able to say what was important to us in terms of how we operated as a business. And then we created a performance evaluation process, which specifically evaluated behavior of our employees and our partners, not just the employees, but our partners as well in each of those areas. Uh, kind of a sidelight is, uh, is we would nominate maybe 20 candidates for partners per year, and half of them would make it through. And the number one reason why a candidate wouldn't make it to partner was because they failed part of that cultural values test. And the biggest failure tended to be around the R, the respect term. So when you're clear on what kind of behavior that you're reinforcing, it also forces you to ask questions about uh, about the uh, uh, about how you're going to hire somebody. Uh, so when you're thinking about uh, a candidate to be added to your firm, I mean, you can look at their resume to see where they went to school, and you can ask some questions to determine their attitude. But think about other ways in which you can reveal how would they deal with situations? How do they feel about certain people? Uh, what would be examples where they themselves may have felt mismanaged and, and what caused that to occur? And so part of this, it's subjective, but, uh, but you know it. Uh, oftentimes you smell it before you hear it. And, and this becomes important uh, in uh, leading uh, businesses, the more complex they become, is that you find different ways to not just identify what you uh, hold dear, but how you evaluate it and how you coach people to be responsive to it or you coach them out of the business. So, you know, we've talked about some big concepts of, of niche and expertise, brand, team, culture, all of which <clears throat> are critical and, and I'd probably characterize as, as making you more referable. How do you think that, you know, I can think as an advisor, you might think about that and think, well, okay, I, I can do all of that, but then how do I activate the referrals? I mean, how does that, in your mind, translate in, in specific terms to generating more referrals? Or have you seen examples where that's been the case? I think I've seen a number of examples where uh, people have been able to translate uh, their market focus, uh, their cultural values, uh, and their approach to business uh, into becoming more compelling to prospects. Uh, in the end, uh, as long as we have to deal with humans, we want to make sure that uh, they're humans that not only can we tolerate, but probably enjoy. And so, uh, so I can think of a firm um, uh, right now that just that just joined us. They were a very large uh, breakaway 
uh, team that had an extraordinarily uh, strong um, set of principles. Much of it uh, is based in their in their shared uh, faith, uh, but it was something that uh, when they when they uh, are making decisions about their business, it's filtered through that, and their clients recognize this. They're, it's something that their clients can talk about: is that uh, that this is a firm that reflects exactly what I think is important. Uh, and that's why uh, I trust them to do business, because I think in the end, one of the things that we're finding about about the advisory business, it's less about investing and more about life, and that um, everybody who's in this business has access to the same information about how to rebalance portfolios and uh, pick funds or ETFs and do those sorts of things. Um, not to diminish uh, the skills of people who do this uh, more effectively than others, uh, but I think that more and more the question is how do advisors engage with their clients in a way that seems to be listening to them and reflecting uh, what's important to them. So, uh, so we see these examples all the time of combining it. Now the question is uh, how do you promote that in the, in the marketplace? How do you share this in a way that people begin to recognize you're more than just an investment manager, uh, but uh, in reality, what you're doing is you're 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 acknowledging that everything that you're fearing and dealing with are issues that I'm familiar with and can help guide you through that, and that becomes an entirely different conversation in the course of being referral uh, referable to the marketplace because now. You have your existing clients and uh, and centers of influence who can talk about you in a way that that is more than, yeah, she's a great money manager or, um, uh, you know, she deals with a lot of rich people. It's it, there's something more to it. There's greater narrative that you're hoping to create. Wonderful. Well, um, as per, I could talk to you for ages about this, but I, <laughs> uh, I promise I won't. I'm sure you've got things to do. So, uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, wonderful chatting with you. You bet. Thanks to you both. Hey, folks, Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.